This has not been an easy sermon to prepare. Let me tell you that right now. Um, The title of the sermon is Christian Order Part 5. Since it's been a couple of weeks, am I too loud? I feel like I'm loud. Okay. Um, Since it's been a couple of weeks since we looked at these verses, I want to do a quick quick review, maybe about three minutes of um, what we talked about the last time. God willing, we'll answer your questions about head coverings and long hair. Uh, The only thing that I'm asking of you, please, 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 is that you listen all the way to the end before you conclude what it is that I might think, okay? I'm, I don't, I'm trying to avoid getting stoned halfway through the sermon. And the last sermon was 30 minutes, and the one before that was around 30 minutes. So this one's going to be a little bit longer than 30 minutes because we have to get through this. This is our third sermon on these verses, and I'm going to wrap, wrap these verses up. Okay, so let's dive in. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 7, if you'll look in your Bibles. Paul says, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. The Apostle Paul is explaining in verse 7 of our text why a man's head should not be covered during worship. Put simply, to not have one's head covered would give a proper or correct picture of man's creation in God's image and for God's glory. Remember that. So we're going to come back to that. In God's image and for God's glory. Paul is saying that man was created and placed on earth to be God's representative his visible representative, who is capable of giving a proper portrayal of his creator, God, a proper portrayal of his God's image and his God's glory. Okay, you with me? All right. Remember last time, we also looked at, I'm going to read it quickly, Psalm 8, verses 4 through 9. What is man that you should take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's important that we see what's going on here. By being created in the image of God, by being in the glory or by being the glory of God and by being the official steward of God's creation on this earth, man represents God's glory, his headship and his authority in this world. So if a man prays or prophesies publicly with his head covered, and conceals the image and the glory of God, conceals the authority of God. He hides all that he was created to reflect 
by covering his head. That which he was created to be. Okay. The representative of the authority and headship of God on this earth. If he covers his head, he not only disgraces his physical head, Paul says, but he also disgraces God as the head of him, of man. And it is for this very reason that Paul says in verse 14 that long hair on a man is a dishonor to him. It is because long hair acts as a covering that hides the image and glory of Almighty God as it should be reflected by man. And also in our text, look at verse 15. This is why Paul says that long hair on a woman is to her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. When the man's head is covered, he conceals God's glory. When a woman's head is covered, she shows forth man's glory. Why? Because she was created to be the glory of man. She was created um, to be the glory of God. Verse 7. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me say that again. Because she was created to be the glory of man and man was created to be the glory of God. Verse 7. For the man does not originate from woman, but the woman from the man. Verse 8. For man was not created for the woman's sake, but for man's sake. Verse 9. So the man is the image and glory of God, but our text says that the woman is the glory of man. Man. That's a tongue twister. Please note that it doesn't say, it doesn't say that she is the image of man. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman. I just read it. But woman from man. For indeed man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for man's sake. That's verses 8 and 9. The implication is instead that by praying and prophesying with her head uncovered, she would be dishonoring and shaming the man whose glory she was supposed to be. Remember, this is very important. She was to be man's helpmate. Genesis 2.18. She was to be, or is to be, his ideal partner. Adam said, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For she is the glory of man. But if she shaves her head and takes on somewhat of a manly appearance then she's not the glory of man, but instead the disgrace of man, our text says. I did not say it. The text says that. I want you to take note of this. Next thing, it's of primary, paramount importance, okay, that we catch this the right way. Paul goes all the way back to the creation account in Scripture. He goes all the way back to Genesis to make his case here in 1 Corinthians 11. This is very important. Paul does not make an argument from custom or culture. 
But instead, he makes an argument from Scripture. Put that on your back burner for a minute. Now, I hope you remember what we said two weeks ago. This doesn't mean that women aren't created in the image of God. It simply means that there are God-given differences, gender distinctions between men and women that should be reverently reflected in the way that women dress, act, pray, worship, and yes, how they even wear their hair in an assembled congregation of the Lord for public worship. Men, listen, it's not hard. Men shouldn't look like women and women shouldn't look like men. Now, of these gender differences, it is the men who have a particular role in representing God or showing what God is like, reflecting him, if you will, and women in relationships show the excellence of men from whom they were created. Yet in both cases, Paul goes on to emphasize their interdependence, their interdependence upon each other. 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12. He says, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. So whatever conclusions you come to, while reading this chapter, you shouldn't come away with the notion that the woman is of less worth. She's not. It's just that men and women, as I said in the past three sermons, have different functions and different roles along the way. Now let's continue on in our text with verses 13 through 15. 1 Corinthians 11. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. I'm going to come back to that at the very end of the sermon. Her hair is given to her for a covering. Paul uses this word nature. Doesn't nature teach you? It's the same Greek word that's used in Romans when Paul talks about a man laying with a man, homosexuality, as being a sin because it goes against nature. Same Greek word. Now, some of you may be thinking, hey, wait a cotton picking minute. Didn't Jesus have long hair? No. <laughs> Actually, he most likely did not have long hair. Despite the beautiful velvet picture of Jesus that your mima has hanging above her recliner on the 70s paneling, okay, with the long locks. According to the customs 
of Jesus' day, he probably had shorter hair. The Jewish men, it's a good way to remember it, the Jewish men who had longer hair were Nazarites, and Jesus was a Nazarene. So during the entire period of their uh, Nazarite vow, no razor was to be used on their head, number 6-5. But Jesus wasn't a Nazarite, and he wasn't letting his hair grow. Uh, he was a Nazarene, so he most likely had shorter hair. None of those things matter here, though. Still matter. Okay. Um, and you'll say, wow. You know, Mike, the sermon wouldn't be an hour and ten minutes if you take the stupid stuff out that you say. Okay, so. <laughs> I used to let Amy read all my sermons before I preached them. It just got too laborious. It was like, okay, um, I got to change this. I got to change that. I got to change this. Ask her, she'll tell you. Anyway. Although, okay, during this time in which Paul was writing, we know that civilized men, whether Jews or Greeks or Romans, wore their hair short. We know that from secular history as well as Christian history. There is, and I'm not saying, please don't think I'm saying that all long hair in a guy is bad. Jonathan Edwards had long hair. Just try not to read in between the lines so that I could hopefully read in between the lines at the end. Okay, so there is another thing that's not going on here in our text. These Christian women in worship, this is the most important thing, these Christian women in worship are not being told by Paul to cover their heads because Paul is afraid that they will be mistaken as temple prostitutes. The vast majority of Bible commentators list this as the main possibility for Paul telling women to cover their heads during worship. They say, some with great certainty, that because Corinth had a large influx of pagan worshipers in their temples, and because that pagan worship included prostitution, and because the temple prostitutes used to shave their heads and or wore their hair short, that Paul is simply admonishing the Christian women not to look like prostitutes when they come to church. If they have short hair, he wants them to cover their heads. So for Paul then, certain scholars say that this was a purely cultural thing with him. It's cultural. No big deal. I want us to understand this morning that the burden of proof is always on the one who says something biblical is so because it's cultural. I'll say that again. I want us to understand this morning that the burden of proof is always on the one who says something biblical is so because it's cultural. We know from Christian history that up until about 50 years ago, many women in various Christian denominations came to church to worship on Sunday mornings with their heads covered 
most with hats in this country, most with babushkas in European countries, and most with veils in Latino countries, but nonetheless, they came with their heads covered. They still do in Europe and Latin America today. So why has this practice been almost entirely abandoned in the United States? I say almost because some women today still cover their heads when they go to church in this country. And I can give you a list of what those, who, I can give you a list of where those churches are and what their names are if you ever want to go and, and see. Um, anyway, back to the question. Why has this practice become uncommon for the most part, especially in North America? Now humor me a minute, please, while I attempt to answer this question. Paul didn't make an argument from culture for women wearing head coverings like many say he did, or like many say is written in between the lines. He made a scriptural argument, that's my contention, he made a scriptural argument as to why women should wear head coverings during worship, during prayer. I could say, you know, well, people believed head coverings to be scriptural as evidenced by the fact that women all over the world from different countries on different continents and of different Christian backgrounds and languages wore head coverings. I could use that as a defense for the argument. Why did they do this? Why was it predominantly true? Because they were scripturally taught and they therefore thought. This what I just said is a fact. You can go back and read the sermons from preachers 50 to 150 years back and see the head coverings, see that head coverings were taught from a scriptural position and not a cultural position. And so head coverings became customary, important buzzword here, head coverings became customary as a result of Paul's biblical teaching on 1 Corinthians 11 and elsewhere. And it became customary because of those pastors who taught, who repeated Paul's teaching on the subject long after Paul went home to be with the Lord. Now, I had planned on listing many quotes here from Bible teachers and scholars of old who taught that Christian women should wear head coverings and they did so with scriptural arguments. They argued this with scriptural arguments. But then I realized I was gonna do that and I realized we would be here until 3 p.m. So just let me name a few, okay, for you. Um, St. John Chrysostom, you've heard me say before, systemized the majority of the Eastern Church's theology. John Calvin, John Gill, Adam Clark, Matthew Poole, 
about some new ones, Tom Schreiner and R.C. Sproul. By the way, if you don't believe me, you can Google Christian sermons and teachings on head coverings from 150 years ago or 100 years ago. You'll get a slew of them. You can type in quotes about head coverings from 100 years ago. Okay, so I had said that I would, that I would prove Paul's words on this issue to not be cultural, but instead biblical and customary. And I'd prove it from the vantage point of Scripture. Now, what do I mean by Scripture and custom? Well, in regard to custom, women wore head coverings during uh, the vast expanse of Christendom from the time of the first Christian assemblies of worship to now, especially in other parts of the world, as I said, where it's far more customary than it is in the United States. They did so and still do so, however, not solely because of custom, but instead because of scripture and custom. In other words, that which is taught scripturally will become customary based upon that scriptural teaching. <coughs> Excuse me. But I posed that argument from custom. Paul didn't. I did that, but he didn't. Paul didn't say any of that. Paul didn't say anything about the culture or the custom um, because he was at home with the Lord when uh, his scriptural teaching on this subject became customary. And I only proved head coverings as customary in other cultures so that I can defend Paul's scriptural teaching on the subject. I don't mean to be twisting and turning, but I couldn't word it any other way. Um, I'll say it again. I, I only proved head coverings as customary in other cultures so that I can defend, which I'm about to do, Paul's scriptural teaching on the subject. It would have never become customary if it hadn't first become scriptural. Especially in Paul's case. Paul could have said this. He could have said, Hey ladies, head coverings are customary only. And so if you don't feel like wearing one, you don't have to because it isn't necessarily scriptural. Could have said that. But he didn't. He didn't even allude to that for a nanosecond anywhere in any of his teachings, especially in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul made a case for head coverings used in Scripture. Paul made a case for head coverings using Scripture. Mike, are you saying that all of the commentators are wrong who say 
that head coverings were just a cultural thing. Yes. It wouldn't be the first time that the majority was wrong about something in Christendom. And in addition, I'm not, I, I am not the only one who disagrees with this cultural motif that commentators use to explain away this quagmire. I'm in pretty good company in my stance here. I'm with um, R.C. Sproul, Thomas Schreiner, Wayne Grudem, Gordon Fee, John Gerstner, Giants. I can go on and on naming scholars, but I won't bore you with that. Theologians who believe this way because of what they see in Scripture. I wish I could put myself in the company of these great theologians, but I'm just a pawn in the game. Uh, in fact, it was R.C. Sproul, R.C. Sproul's teaching, and I kicked against the goads, kicked against the pricks, but it was his teaching that ended up bringing me to a place where I could finally understand Paul's scriptural argument in our text and elsewhere that other scholars also use, but yet other scholars say doesn't exist. You with me? Okay, everybody's... Okay. But if I say that and believe it, I've not only put the burden of proof upon Paul, but also upon R.C. Sproul and myself. In other words, I am positing that Paul and all of these other guys did not promote head coverings because they were customary as part of the Christian culture or the pagan culture, but they instead promoted them because they thought they were somehow scriptural and necessary for reverential worship and prayer in a corporate assembly of Christians. Before I get into the scripture, however, I'd like to say one thing about Paul and our text in general. This is important. I'm quoting R.C. Sproul here. He says this, quote, it's a mistake to assign to Paul a reason for head coverings that he did not give, end quote. It is a mistake to assign to Paul a reason for head coverings that he did not give. In other words, as I said a moment ago, Paul never said that head coverings should be customary or cultural because of temple prostitutes. People have just adopted that assumption based upon what was going on in Paul's day at the time. And folks, don't get me wrong. Sometimes, many times actually, we do use what is going on around us in culture to either help interpret or at the very least Consider an interpretation of Scripture. But that does not fit here. It doesn't fit. How do you know that, Mike? I know because the Scriptures speak to the answer and Paul points it out as you will see right now. 
There are times in Scripture when it isn't immediately apparent whether or not something is scriptural, whether it's a scriptural principle across the board, or whether it's something that looks like custom or culture. It's not always easy to ascertain. And I think that's one of the issues here. If you don't follow, Paul quotes some scriptures. The only way you're going to get what I'm saying this morning is if you go and you read the cross-references that line up with those scriptures that he's quoting. Okay? There are times in scripture when it isn't immediately apparent. In scripture, principles are those commands, principle, the word principle, principles, are those commands of God that apply to all people at all times in every culture and every life situation. If I say that's a principle of scripture taught 100% of the time in scripture, it needs to be adopted as a Christian doctrine. Then it applies to all the people at all times in every culture and every situation. It's a truth. It's an absolute truth. Customs, on the other hand, folks, are varying local applications of those principles. Customs are varying applications or local applications of those principles. For example, I won't leave you without an example. Modesty is a principle but how that modesty is manifested from one country to another will differ by custom. You can't treat a principle as a custom without sinning against God. What do I mean by that? If I'm a missionary to a far off unreached pagan people and my interpreter says, I know it's a biblical principle I know it's a biblical mandate, Mr. Missionary, to teach that one should not bear false witness against their neighbor. But whatever you do, don't preach that here because these people have a God that they esteem greatly and they call his name the God of deception. And the people believe that as long as they appease this God, by sacrificing one of their children in the village by fire once a year, that that God will continue to bring good fortune to their crops and their livelihood. So don't mention that ninth commandment. That's their custom, my interpreter would say. That's their custom. That's what they do. Now, what am I going to do with that as a missionary? Of course, I am going to preach the ninth commandment of the Ten Commandments because it is a principle. It is a scriptural mandate across the board. Genesis to Revelation. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. It applies to all people at all times, in every culture, in every life situation. I cannot even entertain the custom of a child sacrifice to their pagan god of deception because my God, the God of the universe, has trumped that wicked custom with something that is so etched in the stone of the universe that it cannot be removed even one time. It's a principle of God that cannot be changed. 
So like I said, you can't retreat. I'm sorry. You can't treat a scriptural principle as a custom without sinning against God. Not bearing false witness against your neighbor is not a custom. It's command. So many people today, including well-respected Bible scholars, believe that head coverings um, during worship on women was and is a custom, a principle that is scripturally mandated. I have a Muslim neighbor. You've heard me talk about my Muslim neighbor before on my street about 20 years ago. He walked up to me on the street and point blank said, quote, hey, why don't Christian women wear head coverings in church? And before I could get an answer out, he said, let me guess. You're going to say that it was a cultural thing. And I said, yeah. And he walked away. We haven't talked about God since. I can't help but be badgered by the thought that if I was better equipped to give him an answer, I may have been able to make some evangelistic headway with him. Surely if I knew then what I've come to know in studying 1 Corinthians 11 now, I would have fared better for him and for the evangelistic cause. So don't you be like me and be ill-prepared. Okay? Be educated in the scriptures. Now, at this point in the sermon, I still haven't given you the information you seek. That's by design. I'm just trying to... God's going to strike me dead now. Uh. That's by design. I'm just trying to keep you wanting more, almost to the point of frustration, but wanting more. You're probably sitting there, you're saying, well, why doesn't he just say it? Why, why, why did he tell us that the, the ones, put the one scripture on the back burner? The jerk keeps saying that Paul makes the case for head coverings from scripture, but he hasn't given us any scripture yet. Doesn't he know there's a Steeler kickoff at 1 p.m.? We're expected to be over Biff and Buffy's for the kickoff. Remember at the beginning of the sermon, I said, it's paramount that we catch the fact that Paul goes all the way back to the creation account of Scripture in Genesis to make his case here. Paul does not make an argument from custom and culture, but instead from Scripture. Put that on the back burner. Remember me saying that? The most beautiful thing here is that Paul appeals. Listen, this is the whole thing in a nutshell. Paul appeals to creation and the order of creation 
and the definition of the roles and functions of men and women, not to Corinth, to explain the situation. So when I say that he appeals to scripture, that's what I'm talking about. Bear with me. Paul appeals to man and women. He transcends local Corinthian custom and instead highlights those things that are rooted and ordered in the created structure from the very beginning. That's why I'm taking a much more, I hope, reverential view and trying hard not to be flippant at all with Paul's stance here. And I would admonish you to do the same. Why? Because Paul doesn't say or even allude to the notion that he was instructing these women to cover their heads because he didn't want them to be seen as prostitutes in church. If you believe that, you're guessing at best. Paul appeals to creation and says a woman is given her hair as a covering as part of her glory. How many of you women have ever thought of your hair as a covering as part of her glory? Does as part of her glory fit at all with temple prostitution? Does part of her glory fit at all with gender dysphoria? Part of her glory, that's a phrase that goes all the way back to the beginning. It's foreign in our culture, and I realize that, but Paul takes it a step further, okay? and tags that order of thought with this, quote, don't you know that nature teaches that it's a disgrace for men to have long hair? So he's brought the woman in, he's brought the man in. Remember a couple weeks ago when I mentioned the 60s, when men started wearing long hair. And what happened to women's hairstyles at that time? Women started wearing their hair short and up. Like bobs, pixies. What am I missing? There's another one. Bobs, pixies. Anyway, up, off the shoulders, off the neck. So, it was almost like the sexes were trying to engage in a race for who could distort their God-given gender the most? 
The females wanted hairstyles that looked more manly, and the males wanted hairstyles that looked more girly. It's a fact. Can't argue it. We have pictures online. Men and women wanted to pervert their God-given gender distinctions, their gender identity. And they succeeded at that. And as I said in previous weeks, this is continuing today in an unprecedented fashion with the whole trans movement. Paul says it's a disgrace for a man to wear long hair. How long is long, Mike? It's a relative term, isn't it? How long is long? Well, it has to be related to some sort of standard, right? Don't you think? And the only standard that would make sense is the length of a woman's hair. So when Paul says it's a shame for men to wear long hair, he means in comparison to women. But what's the deal about women's hair being her glory? Again, Paul appeals to Scripture, to the creation account, not to Corinthian custom. And in creation, man is given this ordained role by God himself. Man is not superior to the woman, but he is given the position of leadership and the woman is giving the position of subordination. Is there any compensation here for the woman? Most certainly is. She gets the glory. She gets this special glory that the man doesn't get. And her glory, as strange as it may seem, is related to her hair. Universally, it has been a persistent thing that culture after culture has regarded the female gender of the human species as the fairer sex, right? Can't argue that. The beauty is focused on the woman. That's her glory. And it's symbolized by her hair, which identifies her as a woman. We identify her coming from a distance by her hair. You see two people coming and you say, oh yeah, that's a girl. And then you say, is that a girl or a guy? <laughs> what makes you question whether or not it's a girl or a guy? The length of the hair that you see. Okay, so Paul says, when you come into the church, when you come into the church, cover that glory as a sign of reverential submission. And then Paul says in verse 10, do this for the angel's sake. Now you gotta open up that can of worms, Mike. We got time. Now, there are people that take this verse and run with it to all sorts of crazy places. These are the Nephilim, and if women are too beautiful, they're going to come down from heaven, and they're going to have sex with women, and there's going to be more giants in all the land. I've actually heard people say that. That's the truth. Actually, recently. John MacArthur. 
comments on this verse, short and sweet. Short, I mean, I could have spent an hour on this. Short and sweet, okay? He says, quote, It is proper for a woman to cover her head as a sign of subordination because of the angels, in order that these most submissive of all creatures will not be offended by non-submissiveness. We're talking about the host of heaven here, folks. When we come together in solemn worship and in the assembly of the saints, we come before the very presence of Christ and before the throne of Almighty God. And in that heavenly sphere, there is an order that is established. Okay, what is it? The angels subordinate themselves to Christ. Christ subordinates himself to his head, the Father. Man, who is made in the image of God himself, is called to subordinate himself to the heavenly powers. And the wife or the woman is supposed to show her submission to this entire cosmic order of the authority of God, of Christ, and of the host of heaven by simply, simply having a cover on her head as a symbol of submission when she worships. Not done yet. Don't stone me. <clears throat> this thing's been going on for weeks. Doctor takes an x-ray. There's nothing. <clears throat> nothing in your lungs. Nothing in your throat. <clears throat> Can't find anything wrong. You, you've watched me up here for the last 40 minutes. Do you think that maybe something's wrong? Time to find a new doctor. Anyway. Let me find my place. I'm sorry. <clears throat> okay, so that holy order that I just laid out for you, this all plays into that which I mentioned in the very first sermon on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and that's gender distinct, distinctives. That's what this is all about, church. Men and women are created. They are different from one another, but they both, they are both created in the image of God. They have different roles and functions as men and women yet they complement one another in their differences. One of those differences is their appearance, especially the appearance on their heads or of their heads. Their hair designates whether or not they are male or female. Their hair perpetuates the distinctions of these two genders and those distinctions aren't to be messed with or perverted 
The Apostle Paul goes all the way back, as I said, five times to Genesis to make it clear that there's not only an order to creation, but there's an order to worship in an assembly of Christian brothers and sisters. And that order of worship, listen, transcends time. It consists of both earthly and heavenly participants that are not only very much a part of that order of worship, but who are also ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Hebrews 1.14. The angels. We have to stop here. I'm not done yet, but I pray with all my heart that you are able to see what I've put before you this morning. So where do I come down personally on this stuff? I believe that Paul... And write these down if you want to check me on this, okay? I believe that Paul used everything he could in Scripture from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 to 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. These are Scriptures I've used in the past three sermons. To 1 Corinthians 11, 11 through 15. To Ephesians 5. 22 and 23. Just to name a few. He used these scriptures to map out his argument in our text and elsewhere that males and females need to act in a way that honors their God-given gender the way the Bible teaches that it should be honored especially in a house of worship. He makes it clear, Paul makes it clear in our text and all throughout his writings that men and women should refrain from anything that would somehow pervert their God-given gender distinctives. I agree with all of that that I just said. In our text, 1 Corinthians 11, I tend to lean, I tend to lean more toward the practice of women covering their heads during prayer and worship. With that said, I would never expect any of the women at a body and grace church to start covering their heads during worship unless, of course, they feel inclined to by the Holy Spirit or self-conviction. Given what Paul says in our text and given what I've read elsewhere by Bible scholars that isn't in this sermon, I could see myself as being in agreement with any woman who has long hair and as such believes, like Paul, Paul alludes to, uh, in the Greek actually, we, we went over that two sermons ago, that her long hair alone, her long hair alone can be the glory that covers her head as opposed to a hat or a veil, for example. Remember when we talked about that? Anybody remember? The Greek word seems to denote that, um, and there's a possibility culturally too, that women put their head up like in a bun, and then during worship or during prayer, they let it down as a, as a cover of glory. So, as for long hair on guys, I think Paul is very clear 
if you are a male and the length of your hair begins to either exceed the length of hair on the average female or your hair length causes people to say, is that a guy or a girl? When they see you walking from a distance, then I'd say you might be blurring the line of the gender distinctive with your wavy locks. Does that make any sense? If you're a guy and your hair's as long as a girl's, I'm just, again, this is Paul, not me. Now, if you sit and read 1 Corinthians 11 in one sitting, not hard to do, you will see that this is all common sense at church. I believe it's all common sense. You don't need a Harvard education to say, uh, don't grow your hair out until you look like a girl. If you're a female, don't cut your hair so short that everyone thinks you're a dude. Takes no theological training whatsoever to see that in 1 Corinthians 11. It's in there. It's there. But please, don't miss the boat hair. Hair, hair, hair. Okay, don't miss the boat hair. Hair, I believe, here is a peripheral issue. I'm going to go back to defending Paul's scripture. It's a peripheral issue because the primary issue is not hair. The primary issue is order of worship and submission outlined by Paul as God outlined it in the creation account. Just go back and read the creation account. Everything Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 11 about glory and the men and the women and their, their specific glory and gender difference. It's there. It's, re- it's there. Your attitude toward the Lord and toward your husband or wife is far more important here than the length of your hair. But I realized I threw a lot at you this morning to think about. I don't expect you to get all this in one sitting. It's too much information. Don't be afraid, but instead be um, encouraged to go back and listen to this sermon and the previous two sermons and write down all the scriptures that I used in those sermons. Look them up and you'll see where Paul talks about the created order of worship and how that created order of worship and the roles and the functions of men and women fit in this chapter and how hair is just a sign or a symbol of either submissiveness or rebellion. Let's pray.